I began to realize that that new data is emerging, um, or rather had emerged 20 years ago and largely went overlooked in the case of one discovery that I talk about. But uh, we do have some compelling evidence today that uh, the ancient Greeks, um, or at least those who were influenced by them, were practicing something like a psychoactive ceremony in honor of these, of these goddesses and potentially having a life-transforming experience. And the big question is that if the Greeks were doing that, that's the whole first half of my book, uh, the whole second half of the book is, well, maybe the Christians were too. Um, and I, I want to I be clear, it's not that psychedelics were all over the place, but the hypothesis that, that I pursue is, is it possible that some Christians, early Christians, particularly the, the Greek-speaking ones, at some point in history over those early centuries, um, availed themselves of what appears to be a technology that that was available. And so, you know, there, there's lots more data to hunt down, but I present um, two pieces of data that I think are very compelling. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Field Tripping. Today, we talk with author and lawyer Brian Murrescu about how psychedelics may have been instrumental to the rise of Christianity, why, despite writing one of the most acclaimed books on psychedelics, Brian himself has never tried them, and why to die before you die means that you don't die when you die may be the secret to a lifetime of happiness. But before we hop into the conversation, let's hit up some news to trip over. A study published in Nature found that psilocybin increases cognitive and neural flexibility in patients with depression. Many scientists and doctors have suspected that this sort of flexibility may underlie the therapeutic benefit of psychedelics, as psychiatric disorders like depression are generally associated with rigidity. The plasticity conferred by psilocybin and sustained with psychotherapy may allow patients to escape negative patterns of thought and behavior. But this study found that the relationship between depression and flexibility might not be so simple as the increases in flexibility were not correlated with reductions in depressive symptoms. Just as too much rigidity can be harmful, too much flexibility can be harmful too. It can be destabilizing, especially when it's prolonged. This speaks to the importance of personalized therapies. Some people benefit more from flexibility than others, and everyone has a uniquely optimal balance between rigidity and flexibility. On to today's conversation. I'm here with Brian Murarescu, a graduate from Brown University with a degree in Latin, Greek, and Sanskrit, and a graduate of Georgetown Law, who has debuted his first book a little over a year ago titled The Immortality Key. His work in this text explores pharmacological influence dating back to ancient times and impacting religion and many of the scriptures we're familiar with. In reading The Immortality Key, it is revealed that the use of psychedelics may have been instrumental to the development of Christianity and potentially many modern religions as we know them. These findings and philosophies have been impressively written by Brian and admired by so many since its first release, me included. Brian, thank you for joining us today and welcome to Field Tripping. Awesome. Good to see you, Ronan. You too. Thanks for making the time. First question for you is, as one reformed lawyer to another, although I don't know exactly how reformed you are, uh, <laughs> but doesn't it feel good to be outside of the pure practice of law? 
<laughs> the the reformation process continues. Maybe maybe this is this is the true reformation. There you go. Are you still practicing today? Um, I do still practice okay. here and there, actually. Um, not as much as as I used to. And my life has become fairly psychedelic over the past year. Sure. Um, but I, I look forward to to holding the, those licenses for a few more years. Yeah, fair enough. And how do you balance that? I mean, I saw you were doing some work on cannabis as well recently, right? Yeah. So I actually cut my teeth on some cannabis advocacy thanks to Rick Doblin, who m- many of your listeners probably know about. I, I sent Rick a random note Oh, I don't know, five or six years ago now, asking him how how an attorney like me uh, could learn more about psychedelic drugs, and he pointed me to cannabis okay. for some reason. Yeah. So um, I, I hooked up with a team of medical professionals to really look into cannabis from a public health perspective. Um, they did some really great work at Doctors for Cannabis Regulation, and then I had the the distinct honor of representing a guy named Mike James who, as far as we're aware, he was the first professional athlete in the U.S. to actually file therapeutic use exemption. It's called a TUE with the NFL um, to, uh, to use cannabis uh, as an alternative pain management technique. And we sat there in arbitration with the NFL and lost, uh, but it was, it was a conversation worth having. Yeah, totally. That's awesome. I mean, I, I'm obviously a lawyer as well, still qualified despite my best intentions and obviously did a lot of work in cannabis before getting into the psychedelics industry. So mm. our paths are, are very similar, but um, but you're a classicist and I was probably a classist when in high school and thinking about going to university <laughs> and su- studying the classics and all that mumbo jumbo. I was like, I was on a straight shot to trying to get my business degree and then into law school, which uh, in hindsight was... Maybe a little foolhardy, but I guess I'm I'm pretty content uh, on on where I landed. But but please, if if you could give us a little bit of of your path. Um, so you went to undergrad, you studied the classics. Classics. Uh, what what attracted you to them? What persuaded you to go into law school? And ultimately, what persuaded you to write a book about psychedelics or to randomly email Rick Doblin to say how do how does a lawyer like me do something with psychedelics? <laughs> Good questions. Um, let me see if I can remember. So, um, so I, I mean, classics were the reason I went to to Brown University. I was, um, it, it was my path there. So I'd started learning Latin and Greek when I was fourteen, or Latin at least, and then I, I picked up Greek when I was fifteen, um, thanks to the Jesuits at St. Joe's Prep in Philadelphia. And four years later, I was better at that than I was at math. And so when I was applying to schools. Um, all I would talk about was my love of ancient language. And so that, that's how I caught the train up to Providence, Rhode Island. And so I thought that I was going to do a PhD or maybe go to seminary, become a priest. There's not much that you can do with Latin and Greek. True. Th- those are two of the career options. And yeah. then at some point, and I read about this in the book, I, I really did hear the grad students talking about the, the job market for classicists. And I was ty- tired of being broke. So I went to, I went to law school. And three years later, was was working on Wall Street, um, but I never I never left my love of classics behind. And so while I was there trying to learn about the international markets, you know, part of my brain was just steeped in the past. And when I first read about Roland Griffiths and the team at Hopkins and everything they were doing with psilocybin, I started to connect some of those dots um, in terms of the ancient mysteries and wondering, you know, if people today are having this transformative experience, like in an afternoon. Over the course of a few hours, why couldn't that have been happening 2,000 years ago, 20,000 years ago, 
And so I continued practicing law. And then nights and weekends, I was trying to hunt down this mystery for a good 12 years. What uh, do, you, do you remember the moment where you kind of had that light switch go on being like, hey, if people are doing psychedelics now and having these experiences, why didn't they do it back then? And where did you start when you're like, oh, that's an interesting idea. Like, how do you take that from a cool idea of being like, I'm going to dig into this? Uh, YouTube. So <laughs> I was going <laughs> to say Uncle YouTube. Google, but YouTube works well. <laughs> well, see, YouTube was relatively new at the time. This is right. 2007, right? right. Um, and the way I heard about the Hopkins study, it, it didn't hit my radar until like a year after the fir- one of the first publications. So I, I think they published one of their early studies in 2006, and I read it in the summer of 2007. It was in The Economist. And I, I read about this in the book. It's a true story. I, I was sitting on the 57th floor of what used to be the one Chase Manhattan building overlooking the East River. And for no particular reason, it was a year old at that point, I pick up this copy of The Economist, and there was an article you can still find online called The God Pill. And Gordon Wasson, of all people, was mentioned in the first paragraph. And for those who don't know who Gordon Wasson is, um, he was this J.P. Morgan banker turned ethnomycologist. And he co-wrote the book that fascinated me when I was an undergrad, The Road to Eleusis. So Wasson wrote that together with Albert Hoffman, who famously discovered or synthesized LSD back in the 1930s. And this 'er ne'er-do-well classicist named Karl Ruck, at Boston University. Now, yeah. I'd always loved that book, and I hadn't thought about Wasson in years and years. And there he is in The Economist, and they're talking about psychedelic drugs, which I knew nothing about, and to this day have still never personally experimented with. And that's what started the rabbit hole. And so I just started reading everything I could that Wasson had written, Hoffman. I got into Terrence McKenna uh, and went down a lovely rabbit hole. Can you give anybody who's listening right now who hasn't had a chance to read The Immortality Key, can you take us through uh, the very Indiana Jones-esque adventure uh, in, in the book? Okay, what's, so what's the best way to describe this? Um, it's, it's this real-life Indiana Jones crusade through the libraries and archives and museums and catacombs, uh, largely in the old world. And so... It, it's it's my it's my retelling of my own process of discovery over these over these twelve years. Well, from two thousand seven and eight till about twenty twenty, right um, to the very beginning of the pandemic. My my writing process ended just as the pandemic was beginning. So nice timing, interesting timing. Um, and I just I I try to be very honest in a very relatable way, just telling people what what that was like for me over those 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 twelve years and. Um, in the last couple of years, I, I went through uh, Greece and I traveled to Spain and Germany and Italy and France, just trying to piece together all these different clues about what uh, Houston Smith, perhaps one of, the, one of the greatest religious scholars of the 20th century, once called the best kept secret in history. So how can you talk about a best kept secret and not be intrigued? And so it was uh, his supposition that something was involved in this religious rite that we call the Eleusinian ceremonies, kind of one of the more well-known rituals from ancient Greece 2,500 years ago, um, probably older than that. Um, But there there was always this question about what was happening in those ceremonies. What were the Greeks really up to? Uh, We have clues about an ancient potion that was drunk, visions that were had, goddesses that were spied, um, and this life-transforming event that would happen in one night. And so, I mean, just circumstantially, Kind of, kind of similar to the clinical literature yeah. and how quickly 
mystical transformations can happen in the, in the course of an afternoon. And so, um, you know, the, the theory was really laid out very well in the 1970s in that book that I talked about, The Road to Eleusis. But um, there was really no hard scientific data at the time to connect ritual psychedelic use to the ancient Greeks or to the Romans, and then most controversially to the earliest Christians, because yeah. there, is, there is some continuity there. Uh, so it's kind of a crazy idea. And Carl Ruck, the classicist, kind of became the black sheep of the classics estate, and drugs weren't that popular to write and talk about in the 70s and 80s, maybe even the 90s. Yeah, at least and for those audiences. <laughs> but then to my surprise, as I started talking to people, and this is this is all in the book, you know, I reached out to all these professors and all these scientists and had these meetings at Harvard and um, we, we're talking to these archivists in Rome. Like nobody was really that shocked by the hypothesis. And, you know, my, my goal was always trying to find the scientific data. And so the long and short of it is that by combing through you know, old journals and looking through archaeobotany and studying up on things like archaeochemistry, I, I, I began to realize that that new data is emerging, um, or rather had emerged 20 years ago and largely went overlooked in the case of one discovery that I talk about. But uh, we do have some compelling evidence today that uh, the ancient Greeks, um, or at least those who were influenced by them, pra were practicing something like a psychoactive ceremony in honor of these of these goddesses and potentially having a life transforming experience and the big question is that if the greeks were doing that that's the whole first half of my book uh, the whole second half of the book is well maybe the christians were too um and i want to i want to be clear it's not that psychedelics were all over the place but you know the the hypothesis that, that i pursue is is it possible that some christians early christians particularly the, the greek speaking ones at some point in history over those early centuries um, availed themselves of what appears to be a technology that that was available. And so, you know, there, there's lots more data to hunt down, but I present um, two pieces of data that I think are very compelling. Super fascinating. Um, I mean, you, you definitely present a, a persuasive argument uh, that, um, you know, these illusion rights, um, you know, spread out across Europe and, and into the Levant and, and that kind of area. And, and therefore, it seems very plausible, especially when you think about some of the early descriptions um, and discussions about Jesus and um, the early Christian rites, that it's, it's very plausible that, you know, some sort of psychoactive or psychotropic um, substance was involved in the early days of, of Christianity. Um, What's your actual like personal belief? Do you think that's actually what happened? Like, you know, there's like, there, everyone likes to like present a hypothesis, but not a lot of people like to stand up and say like, and this is what I actually believe. <laughs> okay, I'll go on the record. What do I, what do I actually believe? I do not think that that psychedelics were involved in the Last Supper. Okay. Um, I, I think that's, that's unknowable to begin with and probably untestable. Um, but I also don't think that's the point, right? And so, you know, I mean, Bart Ehrman, uh, the great scholar, calls what happened to the Roman Empire uh, the single greatest cultural transformation in the history of Western civilization. I mean, how does this illegal cult, that's what Christianity was, it was an, an illegal cult, how did that become the official religion of Rome yeah. in just a few centuries? And there's lots of hypotheses that talk about how that could have happened. And I'm not claiming psychedelics Again, we're involved in the Last Supper or psychedelics were riding this wave in antiquity. But 
if you look at some of the Greek in the Gospel of John in particular, and if you, if you just think in very basic terms about the sacred beverages at the time, um, you know, the way that we think about wine is not the way that the ancients thought about wine, particularly in the Greek-speaking world, right? Um, so I don't want to—I don't want to get too wonky, um, but you know, uh, this wine is, this was is very... a podcast for getting wonky. So please, wonky. Okay. Well, we'll we'll get a little wonky, but, and and this is an answer to your question about what I actually believe. Yeah. Um, um, I what what I think we know with relative certainty is that the wine of yesterday was very different from the wine of today. And what do I mean by that? So if you think about the world 2000 years ago, um, this, is, this is a time before distilled liquor, before distilled spirits. There weren't potent drinks like that. That wouldn't happen until centuries later. And if you think about the word alcohol, it comes from the Semitic, alcohol, and that may seem like a nerdy linguistic point, but you can read the whole New Testament and you won't find the word for alcohol because the Greeks didn't have a word for alcohol. When they thought about wine, they thought, again, about a very versatile beverage, which was routinely mixed with plants, herbs, fungi, uh, sometimes toxins. You could kill somebody uh, with a hemlock-spiked wine. You could perhaps precipitate a vision with a mandrake-spiked wine or, or black nightshade. Um, I didn't find any evidence for mushrooms. Um, but we did find evidence, for example, of an ancient beer that seems to have been spiked with ergot. Ergot is that natural fungus from which Albert himself was able to synthesize LSD. So it, ju it just goes to, to show that the beer and wine of antiquity is very different from that today. And so what I really believe is that, like I said, in, in some cases, um, in some cases, I, I do think the wine was spiked with compounds we haven't yet identified, although we have some good, we have some good guesses. Uh, that, that could have facilitated an ecstatic experience. And, and, and I think that language and that ritual would have called to people in the Greek-speaking world because there was a God dedicated to exactly that proposition, yeah. and that, that's Dionysus. And so I spent a lot of time in the book comparing Dionysus to Jesus. And the big question I ask is, like, how would somebody in the first century have thought about Jesus or the second century? If you're a Greek speaker and you know, you know about this, this funky wine splashing around, and you know about these ecstatic visions and this madness that Dionysus calls you to, is, is it possible that at least some folks look to Jesus, look to Christianity for the same type of experience? It's, it's an open question, but I, I do think there's something there. Yeah, that, that comparison between Jesus and Dionysus is, is incredibly fascinating. And it wasn't the first time I had actually seen that, actually, when I had watched. Did you ever see the documentary called Zeitgeist? Um, yeah, was, uh, I think so, yes. Yeah, yeah. And, and they go through th three things. They talk about the World Trade Center, they talk about uh, the monetary system, and they talk about religion, and they, and they drew the <laughs> comparisons between Jesus and Dionysus. And, you know, it, it's fascinating. And I remember... Um, God, it's probably about 10 years ago now. Time seems to warp as you get older, but there was a lot of excitement uh, about this os ossuary, I think it's called, not the not the bird, but the bone box um, <laughs> they used to bury people in. And uh, there's a lot of excitement because purportedly someone had found one that said, um, Joseph, the brother of Jesus or Joseph, the father of Jesus. And this was at least as far as I understood, and, and you'd probably know this better, so please correct me, was this was the first physical evidence, the first physical proof that Jesus ever existed. There's lots of written proof, but there hasn't been any physical proof of the existence of Jesus. Um, 
and so like this box represented it turned out it, be, it was a fraud um according to subsequent <laughs> like analysis but it was really interesting to the idea that you know besides their written record there's no proof of jesus written records pretty persuasive but you can see how quickly in light of that how narratives of Dionysus and, and you know other traditions could be woven mm. into the narrative of what we understand to be Jesus to this day um and uh and so it's all very very fascinating to me why do you think I mean oh certainly between like the 70s and today it, it's pretty natural for people to be really resistant to the idea that a psychotropic substance could have been, uh, you know, a foundational element to the evolution of of Christianity. But why do you think it's so problematic um, for so many people to possibly accept that to be true? And especially, you know, you it sounds like you were raised in a fairly religious context with with the Jesuits. So you know, it's uh, as a Jewish person, it's neither here nor there. I think it's really cool. Um, <laughs> so why why should it be surprising that? Um, non-ordinary states of consciousness are, are instrumental to the foundation of a lot of religions, but this one seems particularly problematic. Do you think there's a reason for it beyond just the war on drugs? There, there Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, there there could be. I, have to, I mean, I think about that a lot. I, I wonder why the hypothesis was so controversial in the 1970s. That, I mean, essentially, the ancient Greeks were using drugs to find God, right? And that maybe the earliest Christians were too. Why, why was that so unacceptable? Um, I mean, the best I can do in the book is I, I talk about Karl Ruck and I talk about the, the, the environment at Boston University at the time. Um, and I talk about the hippies and the anti-war movement, and they were often um, associated with, with psychedelic drug use. And this is also the era of Tim Leary, um, not too long before that, who somehow became the most dangerous man in America. The most dangerous! Jesus, I know. <laughs> With his psychedelic gospel and drugs were public enemy number one. I mean, I think that that really transformed our culture. Um, speaking about another transformation, um, because if, if you go back even just a little bit before that, you know, we had a very different relationship with drugs until some of these international treaties, until some of the laws. And in the very last chapter of my book, um, I talk about you know, how these things became illegal. And I, and, and, and I do wonder if that suspicion around drugs was always there. And if somehow the church was involved in that and how, you know, herbs that are natural became bad and evil. And I spent a lot of time talking about witches. It's, it's kind of fascinating for me to study the, our relationship with, with the natural world um, over this time. But I mean, the long and short of it is I, I do think the war on drugs has really skewed um, our relationship with drugs today and, and how we think about them being used in the past. Because when I asked um, the, essentially the minister of antiquities in Greece about this, um, I'll, I'll, finish, I'll finish with her one-liner. Um, and, I, and I asked her, like, do you think this is controversial? Like, do you, what, what, what do you make of this uh, combination of drugs and, and religion? And, and her name is Polyxeni Veleni. And I remember sitting in her office and she said, well, it's quite natural. And she used that word natural. Like this, this is natural for us. Why is that so controversial to you Americans? Like for, for us Greeks, it's, it's natural that maybe um, the prophetess, the oracle at Delphi, for example, um, through Laurel or something else, had these spectacular visions and maybe at Eleusis too. Yeah. Um, so it didn't strike her as particularly odd. And I, and I do wonder if in the way the U.S. conceived and then exported this war on drugs, if it really has us all thinking very strangely about about these compounds, which is now quickly changing. Yeah, extremely quickly changing. And 
while I was reading the book, I, I remember um, thinking about, I mean, you, you described to the extent, uh, I think we are able, um, what may have happened during the, the rights at Eleusis. And I was just like, man, it would have been so cool to be witness to that, to be maybe a participant, but certainly a fly on the wall, you know, when, when all of the great luminaries of, of, you know, the classics era, the ancient Greek go through this experience and come out without a fear of death, right? And like the, if you mm. die before you die, then you don't die when you die. God, that would have been absolutely cool to, uh, to be, be privy to and, um, not to in any way, um, compare your writing or your research to that of Dan Brown, but uh, one of the <laughs> theories... It's that, been done before, Ronan. Uh, I'm sure it has, but I, I mean, I, I think it's also a relevant consideration and I'm, I'm curious to know your thoughts, but like one of the things that uh, Dan Brown alludes to in his books, which I'm you know, quite certain was a, a thesis derived from other books, uh, was that one of the big concerns... Um, you know, at least of what was going on in the Da Vinci Code was that the church was concerned that um, these things, certain things would enable a direct relationship with God and therefore you didn't need the church. And and certainly I think psychedelic experiences are a way for someone to potentially commune with God or whatever you want to call that thing, that entity, that being, that spirit. Do you think that plays into it at all? And I know I'm asking you to speculate about the the intentions or thought processes behind a massive ancient organization, but, um, <laughs> you know, no one, there's no one better right now in this conversation to speculate on it than, than you. So curious to know your thoughts on that as well. <laughs> I'll happily speculate. Um, there, I've, I, and I've talked about this before. If you look at the spectrum of like total global conspiracy and 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 just a, a total innocence. Yeah. Um, I, I think that this this conversation really came to a head about 1600 years ago, and th- this is this is when some of those heretical Christian groups that we call the Gnostics, for example, was kind of a catch-all term. Um, folks who are very much interested in, in the direct experience of God. It's it's when they they begin to disappear. Um, it's when the pagan mysteries of Eleusis finally crumble. Um, uh, all this disappears about 1,600 years ago, the end of the fourth century. Now, why was that? Was 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 it really this um, this horrific fear of drugs and women to some extent, or was this the natural process of the Roman Empire going on to institution build this this church? Right. Um, I think there's lots lots of ways to think about it. Again, in the same way that I, that I don't think psychedelics were that widespread, and you know the the causative event for the adaptation of Christianity. I don't think that there was this conspiracy against drugs per se, but if you think about it, um, mysticism and visionary experience and ecstatic experience doesn't lend itself well to the building of a church for millions and millions of people. Um, This is why the early church got together in the fourth and fifth centuries and called these councils um, under the aegis of emperors, by the way. So it was emperors convening these people to figure out which books go in the New Testament, which ones don't, what is doctrine and dogma, what is not. Um, you know, when, when you're institution building the, and getting people into the pews, um, this notion of house churches, right? Like worshiping privately at home or even at the tombs of your ancestors underground, which were the two primary venues of Christianity, by the way, um, that, that, that's going to suffer. If, if the goal is to build a church, right, to build that body of Christ, it's very difficult to do that if folks are retreating to their homes, maybe consuming an alternative sacrament and, and having a relationship with God that 
doesn't need clergy. Um, you know, so I, I, I don't know where I fall on, on that spectrum. Um, clearly, there was an effort to stamp out the Gnostics among the church fathers. Clearly, women were excluded from roles of leadership. And in at least some instances, I wrote about this in the book, um, the church fathers do talk about drugs. Hippolytus does talk about uh, this other group of Gnostics, um, the followers of Marcus, who allegedly would spike their wine with drugs and uses the Greek word for drugs like seven times in this one passage that I cite. So it was at least part of the formula. I'm not sure how big. Yeah. It, it's funny that, you know, we talk about drugs and wine separately, some like somehow alcohol, um, whether it was spiked with addition thing, additional things or not, it is not a drug. And somehow it's okay if it's alcohol, but if it's other things that becomes potentially problematic. I, I think you just answered this question, um, but um, I'm, I'm going to pose it again. And if there's any other thoughts that come up from the way this question is articulated, please feel free. If not, if you just want to, you know, add it or I forget what the, 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 the uh, Latin that we use at law school or in law documents about like, see the previous comment, um, feel free to do that as well. But, uh, we did, we did. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. Thank you. Uh, you talk quite a bit in the immortality key about mysticism, faith and religion, commenting from brother David that it's virtually impossible to start a religion without mystical experience like Moses and the burning bush. Hmm. Uh, if you haven't read any Tom Robbins, uh, who's my favorite author, you certainly should. Um, he said once wrote that religion is nothing but institutionalized mysticism. The catch is mysticism does not lend itself to institutionalization. The moment we attempt to organize mysticism, we destroy its essence. Religious religion then is mysticism in which the mystical has been killed. Do you think that that's the natural evolution of all mysticism? Um, that eventually it seeks, someone seeks to try and organize it for maybe genuine reasons, maybe control reasons, um, uh, and that actually kind of stamps it out? Because I know growing up Jewish and Reformed Judaism, um, there's nothing mystical about that experience whatsoever. It is quite the <laughs> contrary. And, and based on my limited experiences with churches, uh, although... You know, I, I guess I've been indirectly privy to some of the ecstatic experiences that certain uh, churches uh, participate in, like talking in tongues and all that kind of stuff. You know, it does feel like a lot of the mysticism has been stuck, sucked out, and it's become an instrument of societal regulation. I won't say control because that implies some sort of intent, but it, it, it takes the mystical and then turns it into a form of regulation, which may be necessary for the evolution of society. Maybe not. We don't know. We've never really existed in a context where. It hasn't evolved that way, but what what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's oh, it's a great question. We 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 talked about that a little bit before how some of these heretical sects just didn't lend themselves well to organized religion. I mean, they 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 were bound to die under the weight of their own secrecy in some cases, as much as they were exterminated by the church hierarchy. I mean, the, the secrets tend to die. Uh, we haven't talked about that yet, but the, the these mystery rites at Eleusis. Dionysus to an extent, early Christianity. I mean, this, this was secret stuff, secret sacraments, secret recipes, um, secret private experience. Um, you know, so that, that stuff isn't going to mainstream itself. And it's very difficult to do that even today. It's, I, I'm reminded of what Alan Watts said about mysticism, writing about your question in the 1960s. He said that, that like nothing, um, nothing is more abhorrent um, to the, the power structure than setting up a democracy in the kingdom of heaven. Um, and that, that, that's, that's what mysticism would do, is that it democratizes religious experience um, and, and makes it real and present for people. 
Um, and to the extent that that psychedelics tap into some of that mystical core that you can find, I would argue, at the center of Christianity, at the center of Judaism and other faiths, um, it, it makes psychedelics a little suspicious, maybe. Um, and, and it reignites a conversation that appears to have been had 1,600 years ago. Um, but mysticism is, is important. Forget, forget psychedelics. Um, there, there, you know, Elaine Pagels makes this point, another scholar of early Christianity. Like There would be no Christianity without visionary experience. Yeah. You mentioned Moses, but you know, Paul falling off his horse on the road to Damascus, yeah. um, struck blind by this heaven-sent light. That's an ecstatic experience. Uh, Peter is described as being caught up in trance. In the in the New Testament, um, and then you look at all the saints and mystics over time. They often had um, a tense relationship with Rome or the power structure, and maybe the same in the Orthodox Church to an extent. Although it's a bit different there too. Um, but there's there's always been mystics, um, and there's always been this uh, this power struggle that I, I write about between the bureaucracy and the mystics. Brother David talks about that as well. Um, so this, this is well known. What, what isn't well known is what the balance is right. between the two. And are people today thirsty for bureaucracy or are they thirsty for an actual experience of, of something that could reorient like the very direction of their lives? You have not, you said at the beginning, uh, experienced psychedelics. And I, I want to sort of probe into that. Um, you know, certainly I, I understand it from the perspective of, of writing the book. Um, maintaining objectivity um but but based on and it's been how many years now since you finished writing i know it was published more recently but how long ago did you finish writing it i finished about 18 months ago i suppose yeah and and the 18 months that have transpired um why have you still continued to maintain the position of not having had such an experience and and to be clear like this is coming from you know, I am not objective anymore, given field trip and everything I do. But until middle of 2018, uh, when we decided that psychedelics seemed like a really interesting uh, area of opportunity, both both from an impact perspective and a business perspective, I had never tried them either. It was generally anti-drug um, wow. uh, up until that point. Wow. Not, not entirely. Certainly through my, my teen years, I was. Into my 20s, I discovered how fun alcohol could be, but I didn't really drink until <laughs> second year of... Uh, university. And then after that, like I didn't really choose to parse much further. I saw no need to try cannabis, even though I tried it a handful of times or psychedelics or anything else. Um, certainly our experience in the cannabis industry, and when I say are, it's because the same people who founded Field Trip are the same people I worked with in the last business. We got into cannabis, not having much experience with cannabis, not having much affiliation. Um, so you're talking to a person who, you know, has walked that line of being like, I was never really interested in it. Um, but now that I've discovered it, not just for its mystical, um, and spiritual applications, which I think are quite profound and, and meaningful, but m m discovered it and explored it more from its practical medicinal, um, medical applications. Uh, it is quite, uh, they, they, they are very powerful. I, I do understand what all the hype is about on a very firsthand level. Um, so you, you're speaking to a, a friendly audience on this question, but I, I'm curious. It's interesting. I mean, my, my abstention from psychedelics, it, I think, says a lot about how and why I think about them and ecstatic experience generally. Is I, I think what I'm after um, personally, right? What I'm after personally, uh, aside from the scholarly pursuit, is... Um, is the experience of God and not the God of experience. Um, so, you know, psychedelics, like any tool, 
I think, I think are tools. They're powerful. They're sacred. I think they're ancient. Um, they're, they can be unwieldy, a little unpredictable. And, you know, as, as tools, this kind of this whole person preparation, integration um, has to be brought to bear on them. But, you know, I don't look to psychedelics as the answer um, to any religious or spiritual quandary. Um, I think they can elicit mystical experience, but you know, Joe jo Campbell famously said that um, you know any any religion that is not transparent to transcendence or any idea of God that is not transparent to transcendence is an idolatry. And in a way, like anything, psychedelics can become an idolatry um, if if they're not used with the intention of um, finding something profound, right? And so. In a way, like my abstaining from them kind of answers the question because I'm, I'm interested in all the things that elicit that, 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 that mystical experience, um, what, um, what Eliade would call the archaic techniques of ecstasy. And so it's not just psychedelics, but I'm really fascinated by, like, by near-death experience. Um, I'm fascinated by meditation and mindfulness and, and breath work and fasting. Um, and I'm, just, I'm, I'm generally curious why humans are seem to be hardwired for the numinous with just the right dose of psilocybin. That like, it, it, it fascinates me. The bigger question. I really liked how you said you're interested in uh, the experience of God, not the God of experience. Um, and I think this has only evolved in my thinking fairly recently, which is our conception of what the experience of God is, uh, is defined by our current level of experience, right? Um, so to to experience the ecstatic um, doesn't necessarily make a make it the god of experience, but really opens up the definition of what the experience of God can can be like. Right, and that that that's where I, that's where I'm landing. I'm, I, in the past, I've said that I think that psychedelics could be the uh, the Google Maps for the for the kingdom of heaven, what, yeah. whatever that means. And I I don't know what God means either, um, but. You know, it's it's awfully difficult to talk about these these reified concepts. I think it's really difficult to talk about religion in general um, without without that that experiential core. Um, and psychedelics, in, in a way, seem to be a gateway into understanding the whole goal of of a religious or spiritual life or a life dedicated to contemplation. Um, and I would argue service, like the whole point. I mean, if if under psychedelics, for example. I mean, you have one of these classic non-dual experiences and you merge uh, with, with everything and everyone around you. And uh, if, you, if you're able to see yourself as, as part of that larger whole, which a lot of the volunteers in, in the clinical trials will talk about, right? Um, after you have an experience like that, it really turns service into something different, right? Like, like any parent knows with their children, especially when they're infants, is your child really separate from you? before they even have an ego. And so if, if we're not separate beings at birth, how is it that we become all these separate beings with all this conflict and all this violence? And why do we hate each other? Um, and maybe this is one way for people to love each other, actually, and to understand that there isn't so much difference between us. Maybe there's only one of us here, which I know sounds very, sounds very wonky, and, but the, the mystics and philosophers do, do talk about these experiences. And so I can, I can envision a non-dual experience like that really, really fundamentally transforming how somebody interacts with the world. Yeah, I mentioned it, uh, and this will come out after the podcast we recorded uh, the other day, but I, I recently had my first experience with MDMA-assisted therapy. Um, 
and and coming out of that uh, amongst other uh, substances that were used and and coming out of that i remember um thinking about the the two guides uh, a man and a woman who were taking us through the experience and I looked over them and I felt a, a genuine sense of connection with them. And I realized it's because during a psychedelic experience, um, the right ones, not everyone, you are really stripped to your core. You're stripped to a level of vulnerability that you uh, have not experienced since you were an infant, right? And, uh, and so it's natural when exposed to that level of vulnerability to find connection to the people who protect you in that moment. And, and I, start to, I start to appreciate on a, on a much deeper level the sacredness uh, of the role of, of the therapist or the guide or shaman or whatever term you want to use, uh, because it really does require, like expose you to that level of vulnerability. Uh, and mm. there's a level of responsibility that goes with the person who's overseeing it just to the same, almost to the same level of, of a brand new mother or a brand new father to, to a newborn, which is the level of responsibility is uh, at an utmost different level. And it, it was eye-opening. And I realized how, how special and, and sacred that role is. And I came out of that experience being like, yeah, I, I you know, we offer it to uh, people all the time in, in our clinics. So on some levels, I guess I am, but on a much more direct basis, I can see how serving in that role you know that service is is something that's of utmost importance and it really actually made me want to start sitting with people and, and taking them through the experience because it is a, is a gift you get to share just like the the gift of of life uh which is really powerful um that's beautiful i mean what, what is more natural than returning to infancy well i mean I, maybe it's a little unnatural but we, we we were all there at some point it's funny i was just talking to a psychiatrist at uh, Massachusetts General Hospital about this. Um, and it, it reminded me of, I think it's like the first page of my book. I, t- I talk about this woman, Dinah Baser, one of the volunteers in the NYU psilocybin trials. And she's describing her experience on psilocybin as an atheist. And so she's still an atheist, but she has this, this incredible encounter that she describes as being bathed in God's love. Mm-hmm. And and when I, when I asked her to explain, like, I mean, I don't know what that means. Um, what, what, is that, what does that feel like? And she says, well, probably like, like what your mother's love felt like when you were an infant. Um, and, and I can't imagine anything more, more natural than that. I mean, and I'm sure any parent listening can't envision anything more, more natural. And, and to think that under the right circumstances and controlled conditions, that psychedelics can evoke that most natural bond, right, uh, between parent and child. Um, I think I think it's that that is exceptional technology um, that I, I don't think traditional psychotherapy can really hold a candle to, um, and so we're, we're sitting on very powerful technology that is going to impact many people's lives in the years ahead. Yeah, you know, you touched on the return to infancy, and I don't know if you ever saw the movie uh, Benjamin Button. There, there's a longer title to it, but do you remember <laughs> the movie Benjamin Button, where like the kid is yeah. like the baby is born as an old person, and then like goes through the experience of becoming young again, or to use the less poetic Seinfeld version of you know uh, how life is done in the wrong order that you should start old and frail and all that kind of stuff and then with time like get weaker and then you end uh, or get stronger and then you end as an orgasm that's the best way to, to end your life 
But if if you try to like zoom out a little bit and think about it, it's like, and, and you look, uh, I mean, I don't know if your parents are still around or not, but you see the process of like aging and uh, the once strong become feeble again, right? And and physically they become like children, you know, they hunch mm. up and, and get smaller and lose their hair. And you can start to see how it, you know, our lives are exactly like that of a flower, come up, bloom you know, and then go back down into the earth. And then it's hard not to sort of get to the place, especially when you're opened a little bit by psychedelics to be like, yeah, we are just part of the earth. I mean, literally and physically, like every cell in our body is made up of chemicals and molecules that come out of this planet one way or the other. Um, so, you know, that just like natural, like we emerge from dream soup and go back down into dream soup. It, it does seem entirely, entirely plausible, even on a, on a, you know, logical basis, excluding the the spiritual or, or mystical um, side of it. Anyway, we're getting way off track, but I find this stuff super fascinating. This is the stuff, like the <laughs> philosophy around it that, you know, I'm, I, especially like people who study this in, in different capacities, I'm so interested in, in, in their perspectives. Um, I saw a tweet uh, from you recently mentioning the burger, applying that you may be working on something, offering a more scientific analysis on the stoned ape theory. Um, first, ah. <laughs> uh, first off, what's your instinct on the validity of the stone ape theory? And secondly, can you indulge us at all uh, about what may be going on, going on behind that titillating tweet? Yeah, I didn't know that. that yeah, exactly. Well, thank you for noticing that. Um, the The reason I, I mentioned that is because uh, my colleague Lee Berger, uh, who is a um, paleoanthropologist in South Africa, <laughs> he mentioned that on a podcast, which I thought was fantastic. I didn't know he was ready to talk about that. Uh, so I, yeah, I've, I've been talking to, to Lee for uh, over a year now about this, actually. Um, listen, I'm, in the same way that I approached the best kept secret in history or this, the, this notion of, of psychedelic potions, right? Yeah. Among the ancient Greeks, maybe the earliest Christians. Um, I'm, I, I want to know how old this story is, how big this is. And, you know, for, for the, I'm sure your audience is aware of the stoned ape theory. Uh, McKenna's idea that uh, our, our archaic hominid ancestors may have stumbled across, in his mind, it was psilocybin containing mushrooms on the African savanna in the wake of some climatic forcing event um, that, that brought us from, well, I guess, where we were to what we've become, which is these, these sentient beings. And um, his, his brother Dennis talks about, um, in, in very amazing terms, as does Paul Stamets, the, the, the possibility that may, maybe it was millions of experiences over, over millions of years that actually catalyzed part of our evolution and made us, made us human. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a crazy idea. Mm -hmm. And when I, when I mentioned that to Lee, he didn't think it was all that crazy okay. uh, to, my, to my surprise. Yeah. Um, and we're trying to figure out other ways to, other ways to test this, just like with organic residue analysis and archaeochemistry. If you can go into ancient vessels um, and look at material culture from thousands of years ago, is it possible that going back tens, hundreds of thousands of years, right, um, with technology that maybe hasn't been invented yet, um, or maybe it's proteomics, or maybe it's some, some new dental calculus analysis, uh, which, is, which is lots of fun. Maybe we can figure out the, the diet of some of these archaic hominids. Um, Lee, in his own case, was able to figure out what, I think it was Sediba, one of these older species, was, uh, was ingesting two million years ago. Which really? is which is crazy, which yeah. is kind of crazy, and so if we can do that, maybe we can actually look into the stomach contents, look into the teeth, figure out if there's any psychedelic residue 
um, in, in these remains, which would, I, I think, you know, add uh, some, an, an interesting patina to uh, evolutionary biology and just, and just make it lots of fun for people to interact with. Yeah, absolutely. Are, are you involved with that project or, you know, are you just uh, sort of peripherally by virtue of him being a co- colleague um, participating in it? Um, <laughs> I'm trying to figure out what I should say. Hey, you, um, don't, you don't have to answer it if, if you don't want to, um, but... Yes, um, uh, I think it's fair to say that I, I'm in lots of conversations with with different universities and trying to figure out the best way to um, to to attract the the brightest minds, brighter than mine, uh, the brightest minds, into into figuring this stuff out from as many disciplines as you can imagine. Because um, um, I think psychedelics are one of those things where you know a couple dozen disciplines can weigh in and have something really meaningful to say. And so a lot of it's been in the clinical literature, neuropsychopharmacology and clinical psychology and the neuroscience, all of which, you know, I'm, I'm obsessed with as, as probably you are too, but I'd love to see the paleoanthropologists weigh in mm-hmm. or the archaeologists or the historians and the linguists and why not the mythologists while we're at it or the comparative religion scholars. Um, you know, what happens in that psychedelic experience is, is a bit of a mystery itself. Mm-hmm. I mean, let alone like how it works the way it does, why it works the way it does. Um, I'm really interested in people's experiences. And, and I think that, that, that the humanities have a lot to offer, as a matter of fact. Um, and that something as weird as classics, may, maybe, maybe there's something there for people to say, well, if you had this, this, this crazy vision, um, it, it might help you to realize that people have been having crazy visions for a very long time. And, you know, there are people skilled at helping to interpret that. Um, and Joe Campbell was certainly, was certainly one of them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We had, um, Matt Johnson, uh, from John Hopkins on the podcast, Johns Hopkins on the podcast uh, a couple of months ago. And, um, again, I'm pro- posing these questions at you cause I'm just interested in hearing different people's perspectives on them. Cause inherently they're inanswerable, unanswerable based on current levels of science, but maybe uh, answerable in the future. And, um, we were talking about the the sort of dualist experience, um, and he made this comment, and I, I think I can quote it verbatim when he said, it takes a magical level of thinking to believe that consciousness emerges from an arbitrary level of complexity. Kind of going to the <laughs> point of, well, we accept that humans are conscious, that, that's fine. You know, are dolphins conscious? Pro- probably. Uh, are mice conscious? Maybe. Are plants conscious? Uh, maybe, you know, are, are like stones, like keep going down the, uh, consciousness ladder. And at certain points, like, why is there this arbitrary dividing line between this being conscious and, and this not? Uh, and the, you know, it kind of leads to the inescapable conclusion that everything is conscious on some levels, not necessarily self-aware, but conscious. Um, you know, it takes probably a more complex brain structure to become self-aware, but consciousness exists at all aspects of uh, or all levels of reality curious to know if if you have any thoughts or personal views on that perspective oh <laughs> yeah um this is what, what's the best angle on this um i mean if you think about it from from the religious uh vantage there, there's something called panentheism um and it's funny i was just having this conversation about the nature of soul and is it only humans that have a soul? Which is a parallel question. Do animals have souls? Do, do plants and herbs and fungi have souls? Does the earth have a soul? Do stars have souls? Um, 
it's funny th th these were posed a lot in the renaissance and lo lots of strange answers came from that but when you think about panentheism it's it, this idea that hmm, that nature itself is ensouled right that there's there there's a there's a spark of the divine and ever that's a very mystical concept right so i'm not answering this in a very scientific way uh but <laughs> and, and maybe there's not a scientific answer that ever exists right so it's okay i'm just curious to know where, where you land on it on the perspective personally i'm really fascinated by the way the platonists would talk about this the neoplatonists i'm really interested in the way um richard rohr writes about this he's a franciscan friar uh, based in New Mexico, and he wrote a book called The Universal Christ. And it's it's a, a vivid reimagination of, of Jesus Christ. He has, he has this great line that that Christ is not just Jesus's last name. And the, 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 this idea that, call it the divine spark, if you don't want to call it the, the, the Christ, or this, um, this, this, the, this sense of consciousness, right? Mm -hmm. um, that maybe maybe it's been there all along. Maybe, maybe the the Big Bang, or now that's controversial. But whatever initial initial event there was to create this cosmos, maybe that was the first ensouling of of the cosmos. Maybe that's when that divine spark imbued itself yeah. into every aspect of nature. Uh, Richard has another great line that um, God loves things by becoming them. And if if you take that to its logical conclusion, it's this notion. And volunteers in these experiments will sometimes talk about this: that everything really is special, everything is divine. Um, that there, there, there's, there's a spark of this, um, and you can find this in Christian mysticism, in Jewish mysticism, Islamic mysticism. This notion of of, of these sparks or sense of awareness, maybe um, being present in everyone and everything. It's um, it's it's a bold idea. It's been written about for thousands of years. And is it a perspective that you personally resonate with? Like, where, where do you stand on this? Again, I mean, no one expects, I don't expect you to have the answer, but I think knowing people's opinions can help to form mine because we've had lots of scientists on, you know, we've had lots of doctors on, we've had musicians on, you're the first classicist, uh, well, classicist slash lawyer uh, on. So curious to know where, where your current thinking is, and, and certainly it's going to evolve, but um do you, do you take yeah, a particular? Yeah, you've, you've asked me twice, and, and I dodged it twice. I, I might as well answer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't mean. I don't mean to dodge it. I, th I think I'm still figuring this out. To be to, to be honest. Yeah. Um, and I'm really curious what, what the neuroscience has to say about this. Like where our notion of identity comes from. I'm really interested in the hard problem of consciousness. I talked to Matt Johnson about this, by the way. Okay. And 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 I've asked him and Roland Griffiths, do psychedelics have something to say about the hard problem of consciousness? Um, and it's not clear that, that they do just yet. And so maybe science has something um, to leverage at this, but it, it's not coming anytime soon, I, I don't think. It, the hard problem, right? I mean, this, how this, this lump of jelly creates self-awareness, right? The, the holy grail of neuroscience. But so, and so while, you know, while that's happening, I just want to say that, yeah, as a classicist and part-time historian, I do, I do think about some of these old ideas. And I, and I wonder where those ideas came from. And the more and more I think about it, um, I don't think this was abstract philosophizing. I think that the, the, the notions of panentheism, the notions of divine sparks had to come from somewhere. Um, and maybe what I'm waiting for to make up my mind is to envision this on the right psychedelic pathway. And may, maybe, maybe I should ask that question before my first experience. 
Yeah, no. And I was thinking, I mean, I spend too much time thinking about random shit. Um, and I was thinking about how there's a level of arrogance built into modern intelligentsia um, that we can measure everything, right? Like there's this presupposition that everything is inherently measurable, Um which has been a useful presupposition for the establishment of, of modern science and understanding. Um, but I don't know that it necessarily translates into answering the ultimate questions that we're kind of talking about. Um, but we, and you know, even in, in your answer, which I think was entirely fair, it's like there's a presupposition of like, what does the neuroscience say about it? And it's like, well, hmm. maybe the answer is never going to be found in neuroscience or physics or anything along those lines. But most modern humans are like, well, the answer is going to be in science eventually. And it's like, well, I think that's a very big assumption. It may be valid, and I'm not saying it's not true, but it does require a big leap of faith that, that everything that hmm. needs to be measured is measurable. Uh, and, and, and I'm not... I'm not entirely sure it is. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But the more I, you know, I, I lean into it, I realize it's uh, it's all dream soup, I guess, is the, is the best way to experience it. Like it, when, when I had my first uh, ketamine-assisted uh, therapy experience, like I felt like I was pulled into uh, the beating organs of the universe, of that life force, of the divine, however you want to experience it and like that was all that was and all that ever will be uh and you know we just get to pop out every once in a while and experience something different and then we kind of go back into it and it was a very profound embodied experience for me like it was real it wasn't just something in my mind it, it went to a deeper level uh, anyway these are the things i find super interesting uh and i know we're very far away from uh the conversation of, of the immortality key but the conversations <laughs> about mysticism you know that's what i'm really fascinated about and, and i think the way you frame the immortality key and the conversation behind it leads to a great conversation about this stuff no we're right in the middle of it ronan i mean the the very first chapter of the book is called identity crisis and it's it's that it's that artificial divide between science and religion um, that that wasn't always around in in the past. And when I think about these mystery rites and these rituals, it, it strikes me as a proto science. And that because not everything of value can be weighed and measured, that that's a line from my book. Um, but knowing that that th these these experiences car carry value in and of themselves. And I think the the Greeks, amongst other things, they were obsessed with death, and they looked to these mystery rites, whether at Eleusis or, or the mystery rites of Dionysus, or even some of these incubation techniques that I talk about um, as ways of exploring the nature of the soul um, and the underlying structure of, of the cosmos. I mean, to, to think that by, by just laying down dead in, in a tomb or, or a cave-like setting, this practice of incubation, that you could somehow arrive at answers. I mean, that flies in the face of the Western scientific paradigm. And yet the people who created the Western scientific paradigm were lovers of the irrational, lovers of the ecstatic, and they were fans of alternate modes of knowing. And so, like, I love neuroscience, and I do think it will, uh, of course, it adds to the conversation. Of course, it adds to layers of complexity. But I, th I think the, the, the Greek vision coming to fruition is, is the combination of empiricism and also this, this, this more maybe subjective experience which is which is very very valuable and again can't be weighed and measured and yet it seems to <laughs> it seems to upend people's lives in an afternoon in the case of psychedelics yeah. and 
I, I would just say, like, how do you, how would you weigh or measure the, the love of your child that we've talked about a few times? Um, the, the things that, I mean, in my case, like motivate my entire life, I can't, I can't prove to you that, that I love my daughters. I mean, how do I, how do I capture that for you? I can make a, a good argument about it, but I can't, I can't mathematize it for you. Um, so I, I think that that's, that's how psychedelics seem to be a really interesting way of potentially healing this divide between science and religion. That's a great, great insight. I think this kind of turns on the same kind of answer, but I read Fox article. Um, as I mentioned, I've become intellectually enamored with Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway recently after meeting them at Code. Uh, and in this article, you said, we're trying to figure out what this means for the future of medicine, what it means for the future of religion, philosophy, society at large. I think the next 10 years are going to prove to be really transformational, not just for the United States, but for the rest of the world. Um, this is a question I've been thinking about quite a bit lately. Um, and, and the way I've been framing the question in my head is to what end, to what end is this great psychedelic renaissance and awakening that we see awakening that we seem to be on the cusp of, you know, what do you think? Cause I, I, th I thought about this and I, I, I very briefly had the opportunity to pose this, this question, um, uh, at code. Um, and the, the question was, so we use psychedelics to address people's trauma. We use psychedelics, assuming they're as effective uh, as a therapeutic modality um, as we think they may be. So we address trauma, we address depression, we address all of these things that we need to heal in our souls that we kind of carry from birth onwards. Then what? You know, we biologically, right. we can't live, I don't think, in sort of peak state. We, we can't live in the ecstatic state biologically. Our biology is not built for that. Um, so to the extent that we're going to always be swinging between peak state and normal state, in that movement, there's always going to be time for jealousy, um, desire, um, greed, all of, you know, somewhere in there, potentially, maybe, I don't know. So it's like, okay, so what if psychedelics show us everything we expect them to show? Where do we end up? Uh, and so just curious to know, I have a feeling you may have turned your mind to this question a little bit, but have, have you given thought to that question of like, what is the great end of this not just psychedelic adventure, but I think the whole philosophical adventure that we're, we're talking about right now? Oh, that's a big one, Ronan. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah, I, I think about that all the time. It keeps it keeps me up at night. Um, and again, it, it partially answers the question why I haven't done psychedelics. Um, I, I think they're they're a tool to the awakening potentially of of consciousness, whatever those sparks we were talking about, um, or that return to infancy. Let's call it that. Yeah. This this very natural return to childlike awareness, right? And you can find allusions to that in the, in the New Testament, by the way. Um, but but this, what, what would it mean for a vast number of people to re-enter a childlike sense of awareness where that divine spark is perceptible, right? In those, in those around you. In other words, <laughs> when you're treating every person you come across, um, like your own infant. This is this this is the the thing that mystics have always struggled with. Um, 
And yet it seems like we have technology for this. And this is what Huxley was writing about. This is what Watts was writing about in the 1960s. Are we on the cusp of a popular outbreak of mysticism? Um, because I don't think that the psychotherapeutic tent is big enough to hold this experience when people yeah. go in and have things that shatter their ontology. And atheists are talking about being bathed in God's love. Like something's happening here that clearly has therapeutic benefit. But, you know, the so-called healthy normals that comes up, um, what, what would it mean for like tens of millions of people, hundreds of millions of people, for even, even once, even for, for a brief day, you know, to experience that, that ego-dissolving sense of unity with everyone and everything around them? Um, you know, have we captured lightning in a bottle? This is big speculation. But to, to think that having that kind of encounter isn't, is no longer accidental, which is the way it's been for thousands of years, right? Um, like through natural born visionaries, natural born psychics and mystics and saints, it's always kind of been accidental. When, when I look at the ancient mysteries, I see an attempt to engineer the accidental into something more intentional. I mean, people went to Eleusis as human beings and they walked away gods, yeah. convinced they would never die. Now, we don't have initiation ceremonies like that anymore in the West. We've lost our rites of passage. Are psychedelics part of regathering those rites of passage that you can find in traditional societies the world over? What would it mean for us to wake up with mature eyes looking out on a world that the mystics describe as an illusion or a dreamlike world? Um, the Earth might look very different. In, in, in the wake of a popular outbreak of mysticism. Yeah. You want to hear my uh, genuine but also cop-out answer to the question of like, where does this all lead? Yes, please. Uh, and and it, it took, you know, it's been a couple of weeks of thinking about this, but I think the right answer is, where do we want it to lead to? That is the only real question. Because I, I spent a lot of time being like, if we continue to evolve our consciousness, evolve our consciousness, but the human state is not one that can support um, that level of consciousness, then we are going to you know, consciously evolve our consciousness to a new form of consciousness. I know that's a lot of saying consciousness over and over. Uh, what does that look like? I think that's what we get to decide. You know, um, and we get to choose. So instead of like, where does this lead to? The question is, where do we want it to lead to? And and then that redirects the thinking from something where it's passive of, oh, let's see what happens to being like, hey, we now have a place we want to get to. Uh, and it's mm. a world in which, you know, maybe love is abundant. Maybe it's like all of, uh, I mean, I think love is abundant anyway, but I think maybe we can start to create those utopian visions um, that are real mm. and sustainable. So that's kind of where I've got to on that answer, but I'm always looking for different perspectives on on that. Um, and so, thank you, thank you for offering your thoughts on that. Uh, I have sure. one last question for you, um, which is, you know, psychedelics are, are very much being uh, institutionalized and corporatized, uh, and we see a psychedelic industry happening right now. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, even though there's a lot of I think judgment that can be imbued into the words like institutionalized or, or corporatized. Um, but I'm just wondering, like, what do you see happening uh, within the psychedelic renaissance that gives you hope uh, and what gives you pause? Yeah, what, what might give me pause is the is the commodification of 
of an experience that I think has a rich history, by the way. Yeah. So what is, what, what does that mean? Um, and this is also what excites me about it and why as a classicist or former classicist, one, one time aspiring classicist, at least, <laughs> um, like, I, I think there, there's meaning in history. I don't think this is the first time in our evolution where we've had to tackle this, this problem of a popular outbreak of mysticism or, or how we achieve the right relationship with these, with these compounds. For some people, it'll be medicinal and therapeutic. And just, I mean, in, in order to make that happen, that will have to make its way through uh, the healthcare system and the insurance system. And so I understand all that. Um, it will also impact religion. It already is impacting religion. There are conversations amongst Jews and Christians, at least, and many others about what will become of the faith um, or several faiths. There are folks who clearly benefit from the, the problem solving and, and ideation that can take place under the right amount of psychedelics. Uh, Francis Crick and Steve Jobs famously talked about their experiences. Um, so it's going to mean many things to many people. But I think the one thing that I would caution is that we've been here, right? And I'm always on the hunt for more data and more evidence, but I'm, I'm confident saying that the, it seems to me that psychedelics were involved in some part of our history. Um, and I, I just, I think the question is how deeply and, and, and why? And, you know, Terrence McKenna, one of the prophets of this renaissance, I would argue, um, has this great, uh, this great line that I'll paraphrase about, like, if, if you'd met somebody who didn't know where they were between the years 1995 and 2005, you, you describe them as a fairly damaged person. And yet who amongst us knows what was happening in Western civilization between 800 and 1400 yeah. or what was happening 2,500 years ago. So I'm not saying that, you know, these, these mysteries from antiquity were all psychedelically driven, but they, but they were interesting modes of initiation. And I think we have something to learn from them. And I think we have something to appreciate from the loss of these rites of passage and properly incorporating what that means today in Western civilization for people who have iPhones and want to figure stuff out. We're not all going to disappear to the mountains. Not everybody's going to go to South America um, to, to try ayahuasca. And, and I think there's a way for us to recapture some of that in a way that that's meaningful, um, truly meaningful, um, that's historically appropriate, um, and that, and that really heals this identity crisis that, that we've been talking about the whole time between faith and reason and science and religion. I think psychedelics are, are part of that story. And I think history has a lot to teach us. And I don't think we should be inventing ritual overnight, <laughs> um, to make that happen. One thing you said just gave me like a, a, a blast of optimism, which is like, we have been here before. Right. You know, on the cusp of like incorporating psychedelics meaningfully into society. We saw that in the mysteries at Eleusis in Greek culture, which have been the foundation of modern Western culture and have been the source of many things that I think we hold dear. Um, democracy, you know, uh, the, the pursuit of understanding and knowledge, universities, all that kind of stuff. You know, I think these are the points that you raised in the book. We saw it again in the late 1960s. Uh, and uh, I, I, I don't know if you know who Dr. Julie Holland is, but she made a very valid point when she was on this podcast. She's like, the hippies were right on so many things. The hippies were right. Um, and if you think about it to this day, you know, 
those, I don't know, four or five years in the late sixties and early seventies where what was it? Maybe like a million kids were doing LSD. I don't mean kids pejoratively, but you know, people primarily probably between 17 and 23, 24. Um, and, and the cultural impact of those few years and the Woodstock movement and the hippie movement in the country still palpable 60 years later. It's still a culturally defining point of, you know, the postmodern humanity experience. And they've both been pretty awesome if you think about what they created. And so if we can harness that in a way that doesn't engender a similar type of backlash that we saw, you know, I think um, through the ultimate demise of of the mystery rights and the, the counterculture movement, there's something really exciting to be, you know, something exciting on, on the horizon for us. Maybe the hippies were right, Julie. Maybe they were right. <laughs> On that note, uh, Brian, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's really nice to connect. Oh, I meant to ask you, by the way, how did you get connected with uh, with our mutual friend, Randy? Um, I, I, wish I, I wish I could remember. I think it was one of those, those random messages that came through that I randomly responded to. Yeah. And we had just the, 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 the best time yeah. in, in Pismo Beach. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. Well, uh, where, where, where do you live? Are you, are you based in Philadelphia still? I'm um, just outside DC. Oh, you're just outside. Okay. Okay. Well, um, one of our next clinics is actually opening up uh, in DC. So, uh, if you desire to have your first psychedelic experience be on ketamine uh, in a wonderful clinically supervised setting, uh, where we'll be just around the corner from you, um, should that be an option? Wow. How How about that? Yeah. So keep it in mind. It's a, it's an open offer available to you. <laughs> it's on. It's on the agenda. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Ryan. I, I really appreciate it. It's been a delight to speak with you and, and thank you for sharing your perspectives on, on all of these things. Likewise, Ronan. Thank you. It's been said that the function of the archetype of the trickster is to break taboos, create mischief, stir things up. In the end, the trickster gives people what they really want, some sort of freedom. And while it may not have been Brian's intention to give people some sort of freedom with the immortality key, in effect, that's what he's done. At its core, the immortality key gives a very persuasive and plausible rationalization for why psychedelic experiences very likely gave birth to early Christianity, or at a minimum, were part of what gave rise to a truly mystical aspect of Christianity which, save for some TikTok videos showing pious Christians having some incredibly intense physical expressions of holiness timed to heavy metal, seems to have been lost to much of modern incantation of religion, which Tom Robbins describes as not only the opium of the masses, but also the cyanide. But with the immortality key, Brian gives those whose religious beliefs still persist permission to reintroduce a level of enhanced mysticism into their religious experience, eliminating that potential tension. But Brian isn't the only writer whose work does this. In Stealing Fire, Stephen Kotler and Jamie Wheel proposed that what makes this experience with psychedelics so unique is that, unlike previous instances where mysticism had a popular uprising only to be quelled by religious authorities and elites, it is the first time in history we have the opportunity for a different ending. Because, as they say, a whole new set of upstarts, Silicon Valley executives, members of the U.S. Special Forces, and maverick scientists, to name a few, who are making these experiences available to anyone, field trip included. 
That's why I'm so confident this experience with psychedelics won't be put back in the box like we saw in the late 60s. That ship, in my mind, has already sailed. Which takes me back to the question I had been trying to probe with Brian. To what end? Where does this all lead? And the only answer to that question I can think of right now is to answer it with another question, which is, where do we want it to lead? Hi, Ronan. I want to get into um, psychedelic therapy for some mental health issues, but with COVID, I just don't want to keep going into an office and obviously would want to do this more than one time. Um, How can I safely microdose from home? Thanks. There's a a lot of interest in microdosing these days. Um, And I should make it clear that as much as there's a lot of anecdotal evidence uh, of people reporting incredible benefits from microdosing, the current evidence seems to suggest that microdosing is no more effective than placebo, which isn't bad in and of itself. I mean, if you can will yourself to be better through the placebo effect, that's fantastic. And if microdosing psychedelics uh, enables you to will yourself to feel better uh, through the placebo effect, that's also also great. Um, the truth is, though, that most psychedelics are, are still illegal right now. Um, so getting your hands on psychedelics to microdose is probably the biggest challenge and, and the biggest risk in, in, involved in this. Um that being said, if you do find a, a source um, to provide that you feel comfortable with, because at, at the primary, you know, with any kind of medical decision, uh, it's always got to be a, a risk-benefit analysis. So you need to make sure that the benefits outweigh the risk. So make sure you trust your source if you are actually going to be doing this. Uh, and the important thing with microdosing is to make sure you find a protocol that makes sense and, and works for you. Uh, and I think there are a number of different resources that seem pretty credible. Um in terms of the right microdosing protocols. I know Paul Stamets talks about his uh, third wave and double blind both offer courses on microdosing. So I strongly encourage you to to read about it. Um, And that would probably be the best way to go about microdosing. The the basic rule though is you don't want to take it every day uh, simply because you can develop a tolerance for it. So you need to take it or general belief is that you take it for a few days, take a break, take it for a few days and continue on this pattern. Um, the one kind of known risk associated with at least long-term chronic microdosing is that most classic psychedelics like LSD and psilocybin uh, do engage a potential risk around what's called the 2B liability, uh, which is if you engage or agonize the serotonin 5-HT2B um, receptor too often, it could create some heart valve issues. Uh, the likelihood and risk of it, generally speaking, is probably still relatively low but it's something that you have to keep in mind. So if you do engage a microdosing protocol, I suggest you do it um, for a period of time and then take an extended break. Uh, And then if you feel the need to resume then, Um, but I wouldn't recommend microdosing forever in perpetuity because that does create some risks. So those are the things I would think about. Um, Inform yourself, make sure you have a, a great supply and you know try not to do it every day for the rest of your life because uh, when it comes to that risk-benefit analysis, uh, you start to swing into the risk outweighing the benefits. As a quick reminder, you can record your how-to question for us and we will play it on the show. Just go to speakpipe.com slash fieldtripping or you can email us your questions at fieldtripping at castmedia.com. That's cast with a K. Also, please follow, rate, and review our podcast and sign up for our newsletter at fieldtripping.fm or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Thank you for listening to Field Tripping, a podcast that's dedicated to exploring psychedelic experiences and their ability to affect our lives. I'm your host, Ronan Levy. Until next time, stay curious, breathe properly, and remember, every day is a field trip if you let it be one. Field Tripping is created by Ronan Levy. Our producers are Conrad Page and Harley Roman, and associate producers are Sharon Bella, Alex Sherman, Macy Baker, and Tyler Newbold. Special thanks to Cast Media, and of course, many thanks to Brian Murarescu for joining us today. To learn more about Brian's incredibly profound book, The Immortality Key, check out his website, brianmurarescu.com. That's B-R-I-A-N-M-U-R-A-R-E-S-K-U.com. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Click the subscribe button to my left to never miss a release and click here to check out past episodes. See you next week.